Awesome. Welcome, Caleb Maupin. Thanks for joining us. Sure. Glad to be here. Super excited for this. It was uh, great to talk to your colleague from CPI, Ryan Cotton, and then have him recommend you coming on the show. Yeah. Ryan's pretty cool. Heck yes. Yeah. And we'll be unpacking a lot more of CPI, the Center for Political Innovation, the Four Point Plan. We'll be talking about Caleb's background and how he got to being interested in what he's doing today. So let's start with that, Caleb. Give us a bit on your background and trajectory and how you got interested in what you're doing today. Well, I'm from a small town in Ohio. Uh, I grew up in a little tiny town called Orville, Ohio. It's where Smucker's Jelly is manufactured. It's maybe two hours south of Cleveland. Uh, it's a rural town. Like my graduating class was a little over 100 people, 115. And, uh, you know, uh, I remember, you know, from an early age, I was interested in radical movements and such. I remember that, uh, you know, my mother was a librarian in Stark County. And uh, she and the other librarians, they were members of the SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, and they went on strike uh, when I was in fourth grade. So I think the first political thing I ever did was as a fourth grader, I walked the picket lines with my mom. That was pretty neat. Um, and uh, well, you know, the Iraq war happened and I was very opposed to it, but my town was very conservative and very supportive of it. And we had to do all kinds of pro-war stuff in, in, in school, you know, we had to make these like candy packets for the troops every morning and stuff. And I was kind of alienated from that. So that, you know, forced me to argue with a lot of people. And so I had to learn a lot about, you know, the world. And that really opened my eyes. Um, I got to visit Ecuador uh, when I was 12 years old with my father, who was, you know, he had kind of a side gig leading nature tours in the Galapagos Islands. So I got to go to Ecuador with my dad when he was was there. And I it was in the middle of a, of a crisis of neoliberalism. I mean, I remember getting off the airplane. And there was just crowds of starving people outside the airport. I'd never seen that level of extreme poverty before. 1999 was the year I was there and it was the country was just in turmoil, you know, brought in by the IMF and the World Bank. And so as I got into college, I started doing uh, activism. I got involved with some radical groups. I started doing radical, you know, studies and and classes and reading groups. But I also got involved in protests against police brutality in Cleveland. I actually video recorded. There was a walkout at a high school in Cleveland, at Collinwood High School. And uh, I video recorded the walkout. I heard about it on Facebook. It was like 2010. And uh, I heard about this walkout and I went and I, I luckily I was there with my camera because the police were very violent to two young women, just, you know, just attacked them. Uh, and I videoed it and my video got one of them acquitted in juvenile court. Um, so that was pretty exciting. And, you know, I, I went to court with some police brutality victims and such. And, uh, you know, around the time of uh, 2011, I moved to New York City. Um, and when I was in New York City, uh, it was around the time of the Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, and so I was participating in the Occupy Wall Street movement. I was working in an insurance firm. That was my full-time job at the time. But I, I would go every day after work and on the weekends to go support Occupy Wall Street. And I was working with the International Action Center, which was a nonprofit started by Ramsey Clark, who was the former U.S. Attorney General, uh, who ever since you know Nixon fired him from being a real 
radical voice uh, against war. And, you know, he, he represented Saddam Hussein when he was on trial in Iraq. He represented Milosevic. And, you know, he, he would represent in international court, you know, people the U.S. was going after. And, uh, you know, he went to Cuba a number of times, went to Vietnam a number of times. And, you know, he was he was very much a progressive and he ran this this uh, this activist uh, nonprofit called the International Action Center. And so I, I was working with them during the Occupy Wall Street protests and I started representing them on international television. Uh, eventually, um, I started working with a TV network called Press TV, which is from Iran. And I started doing reports for the, from the UN. I became their UN correspondent. Uh, and then uh, I started working with RT and I've spoken at a number of international conferences uh, in, in, uh, in Venezuela, in Brazil, uh, in, uh, in Ecuador, in Iran and in Russia. Um, and, uh, you know, and now I've moved ahead. I want to start a think tank dedicated to anti-imperialism and socialism. And so that's what the Center for Political Innovation is. Uh, it's about, you know, spreading a message of constructive, optimistic socialism in these dark times and trying to build a world where we can all come together to raise living standards and end poverty, et cetera. Yeah, there was a lot there in the trajectory that, yeah, that kind of pressure cooked you to be what you represent today. So if you, if you take us back, there are these situations where in a sense, the essence of those situations was seeing uh, radical amounts of inequity and of basic needs not being met. Um, people unable to actualize their fullest potential. Um, yeah. And lots of also kind of perverse, um, hierarchical dynamics, um, like extractive dynamics of those that are in positions of power. So would you say that that would be like the amalgamation of perversities that was at, at play that, that kind of triggered your interest in, in greater meeting of needs? I'm always somebody who's wanted to investigate things. You know, my mother was a librarian and, you know, uh, before the internet was a big thing, you know, we always had a world book encyclopedia in our house, you know, all the, all the, you know, volumes yeah. of encyclopedia and we'd be talking about something at dinner time, and we went and got the encyclopedia and you looked it up, you know, and I was always taught to do research and to investigate, um, and, uh, to learn more. And so I always wanted to learn more. Um, and, uh, you know, I think when the Iraq war broke out and we were being told that Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden were, were best pals and had pulled off 9-11 together and that there were weapons of mass destruction and we were under attack, um, you know, I, I investigated, I learned more about it and I learned that that was not the case. And then I think when I went to Ecuador uh, as a kid and saw so much poverty and I had never seen that level of suffering, I wanted to know why it was. Um, you know, I remember there was somebody who told me at the time, they said, well, the reason that people are poor in Ecuador is because business meetings don't start on time, is what I was told. I was told that, uh, well, you know, in, in the West, we start our, you know, in the United States and Europe, we start our business meetings at, on time. You know, if the meeting is at 11, it starts at 11. But in Ecuador, they start a half hour late, an hour late. So that's why they're poor over there is they're not as efficient. Well, I, that didn't make sense to me. You know what I mean? That, that wasn't, that wasn't the truth. Um, and the more I looked into these things, uh, the more I learned what was really going on. Um, 
And uh, it seemed like uh, there was, you know, a huge effort to, you know, kind of lie and manipulate people. And the more I learned about communism, it seemed like I was thinking of this stuff on my own. I thought about healthcare and how, you know, politicians are always talking about healthcare. And I said, well, why don't we just make sure that everyone has healthcare? Why don't we just, you know, like, just like the government makes sure there's roads and the government makes sure there's a post office. Why doesn't the government run the hospitals? And we just, you know, we pay the doctors out of our tax money. And whenever anyone needs to go to the doctor, they go to the doctor. And I would say that and people say, well, that's communism. I'd be like, it's communism. I didn't know what communism was, uh, but it seemed like, you know, uh, you know, I'd see, you know, there was unemployment as a problem. Why don't we just make sure everyone's hired and, you know, put them to work doing useful things for the good of the country. That's communism. I was constantly told, being told that's communism. So that got me to go look into what communism actually was and read the communist manifesto and learn about it. And the more I learned about it, uh, the more interesting it was to me. And I, I will never forget this experience because everyone, whenever they told me about communism would always tell me that, Communism was this evil ideology. It's failed everywhere it's ever been tried. And it just it makes countries poorer and it doesn't work and all of this. So I'll never forget, um, you know, I went to the library and I was, I was wanting to learn about communism, but I knew that you couldn't be like Stalin or you couldn't be like Lenin or Fidel Castro or these were brutal authoritarians, right? So I, I got a book called The Revolution Betrayed by Leon Trotsky. And it was a book that was, you know, I mean, it's called The Revolution Betrayed. I figured it's about why, you know, the Soviet Union was not really socialist, why Trotsky's teachings would be better or something like that. And the first chapter of that book is called What Has Been Achieved. And I opened the first chapter of Leon Trotsky, an enemy of the Soviet Union, a guy that Stalin killed. I, the first chapter is What Has Been Achieved. And it was all just economic data, statistics about steel manufacturing statistics about about coal production and and just I, I was reading this and I was just like this can't be true because everyone told me that everywhere communism has failed and I'm reading he's describing how the Soviet Union is becoming an industrial superpower the biggest steel manufacturing in the world the biggest nation I mean all these people wiping out illiteracy raising I, I'm reading this and I thought this can't be true this has to just be propaganda because everybody knows that communism failed everywhere it's ever been tried so then I went and I got the encyclopedia and I read the you know section on the Soviet Union about economics. And there was like a small paragraph in there that said the Soviet Union achieved, you know, rapid industrialization, modernized the country. I'm like, wait, that's not what I've been told. And the more I dig, I dug into it, uh, the more I learned that, wow, there were tremendous economic successes in socialist countries. Uh, if you compare the life expectancy of Cuba uh, with the life expectancy of most countries in Latin America, they're doing pretty well. Um, you know, and that, you know, China under the leadership of the Communist Party has gone from being one of the poorest countries in the world to being the second largest economy on earth and an economic superpower. And that so much of what I was told about communism, this idea that economically it just doesn't work, it's never worked anywhere, that was just malarkey, as Joe Biden would say. It was just false. Um, and there are just many examples of socialism and centrally planned economies leading to great economic successes. And so as I as I discovered that, I thought, wow, the fact that we've been lied to so much about communism means that communism probably has something to offer. The same people that lied to us about weapons of mass destruction and lied to us about Saddam Hussein and, and Osama bin Laden being buddies, they're lying to us about communism. So uh, maybe we ought to look into this. And, and the central, that was always the central thing I was told about communism. No economic successes ever. And that is just such utter falsehood, right? I mean, you can talk human rights, you can talk about other issues. There are certainly criticisms of what went on in the 20th century, but lack of economic success is not one of them uh you know and and that the fact that we're lied to so much uh really indicated that uh that this was something to look into so there you go
I will also say that, and for me, one moment that was very big in my life was when uh, I, I, you know, I went to Iran for the first time in 2014, the Islamic Republic of Iran. I was actually quite afraid when I was going there. I'd been heard this is a strict religious dictatorship. And I, you know, I was deleting every file from my computer, afraid I might have something that would go against the government and I'd get arrested. And, you know, I was being, I was being told to be very careful. I got to Iran. I found a country that is, yes, I mean, it's, you know, there's posters everywhere, political posters, you, you know, there's the pictures of the Supreme Leader everywhere, and the military is a big part of the country, but I found a country full of very friendly people that, you know, have different perspectives about things. And then I returned to Iran in 2015, and, and I actually got to accompany the Red Crescent Society of Iran to go to Yemen, uh, to go to deliver humanitarian aid to Yemen. Then I spent 13 days on a ship uh, headed for uh, headed for Yemen with all kinds of medical supplies and food on behalf of the UN recognized, you know, Red Crescent Society. Um, we were on our way to Yemen and then the port that we were scheduled to dock in was bombed eight times by Saudi Arabia. They bombed it eight times in a single day to keep us from docking in that port. And I saw the, the warplanes flying overhead and I heard all kinds of reports in international media claiming that we had weapons on our ship and this was a smuggling, a weapon smuggling operation, which it was not. And that was definitely a very spiritual experience for me, uh, and, you know, to spend 13 days on that ship. Uh, and then ultimately go to uh, go to um, Djibouti because we couldn't dock in Yemen and have the ship unloaded by UN relief workers who saw that it was a big lie. We weren't carrying any weapons to Iran or to, to Yemen. That wasn't the case. It was purely a humanitarian mission. Uh, that was a life changing experience that I will never forget, you know, and and uh, and seeing that and, and such. So, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of interesting moments on my journey through life, I guess you could say. Whoa. <laughs> Oh, yeah, there's always room for improving the planetary architectures that meet basic needs and then enable everyone to be actualized to just say that there's a static system that is working for everybody, no matter what is, um, it's not dynamic. That's not flexible. And so we're, we're right now, we're seeing that there's these decentralized universalization style architectures of fractional ownership and inclusive stakeholding, which we'll talk about um, in a bit. I want to visit what you were mentioning also a moment ago about there are these um, across the planet, we have um, we haven't really understood yet what um, oneness is or what unity is. And you talk about it like a spiritual experience because, you know, when you really begin to not just go along with the spiritual platitude that we're brothers and sisters, you know, even biologically 99.9% .9 genetically similar and 0.1% genetically different, which is why you look the way you do. And I look, the appearance of form is the only small, tiny differential. Um, but everything comes from that abiogenesis on the planet. Everything comes from the cosmogenesis. Everything is that one intelligence. And so when we sort of begin getting that, then you don't have the you don't have this malevolence of of bombing and of scarcity mindset rather than abundance mindset um and so that this is a this is this sort of consciousness awakening is 
um, it goes right there hand in hand with spirituality, with meeting basic needs, with seeing everything as one. And so, um, yeah, because that that type of story, those types of stories, we're, we, we, we're going to come to the end of those as we recognize more and more um, of, of the oneness. And so that was also coming up. And um, one other thing that came up that I thought was really relevant was as you were going to Iran and having this experience of so much fear dogma being peddled to you about your visit. Um, in 2019, I also went to China for, for partnership interviews with Peking University and Westlake University in Beijing and Hangzhou. And I was also just peddled so much fear and dogma. And uh, it was so great when people were like, you know, don't take your computer, uh, all this type of stuff. And I was just, you know, breezed right past that. And I made these incredible friendships and connections, just an incredible um, country that has so much awesome hospitality, awesome technology, awesome culture. Um, and it was so welcoming. And it's really important to make friendships in Iran, to make friendships in China, in Saudi Arabia, in Russia, in whatever countries around the world, because we want our friends and families to come together um, because that has nothing to do with what mainstream media is promulgating with fear narratives. And so that that seems to be another critical thing is don't go listening to fear peddled media that's feeding these limbic infrastructures that's making us um, more and more fearful of the oneness, but rather go directly to the friendships with people in other places in the world and recognize right there when people invite you into their home, have some tea, have some food, have enjoy some music together, go and sightsee, go to the local museum, play some sport. You know, that that's that's how we foster this oneness and this and this love. And so that was also coming up to have have you also noticed, you know, as we get into the the other topics, have you also noticed that that being a critical pillar globally is both um, um, really flowering and blossoming these relationships between families and friends across the planet, but also that sense of unity and that sense of oneness. Sure. Well, when you talk about that sense of oneness, uh, I'm forced to think of uh, the book Civilization and Its Discontents by Sigmund Freud. Um, which is, you know, it's one of Freud's most important essays. Um, and in it, you know, Freud talks about how, you know, he's, you know, he does psychoanalysis, he's interviewing his, his clients, and that a number of his clients who are religious uh, have told him that uh, they have this feeling of oneness with the universe, this universal feeling. Um, and it's that feeling alone uh, that gives them the feeling of being religious. And Sigmund Freud can't relate to this at all. He says, I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. I, I don't feel this at all. And he doesn't know what it is. Um, but in the book, he, he talks about this a lot. And that's a big point of the book is, is him trying to make sense of this feeling of oneness that his, his clients experience. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I think that's interesting because I can relate to that. You know, I feel like that feeling of oneness is, is a big part of my life and striving for that feeling of connection with other people and with the entire universe itself is something that I've, I've struggled to do quite a bit. 
Um, and what I think is interesting is, uh, you know, in my book on Kamala Harris, I wrote a book called Kamala Harris and the Future of America. It, it was reviewed pretty widely. And, you know, it's, there's not many books about Kamala Harris. Um, I quoted from that and I talk about, you know, what it means to be a leftist or what it means to be left wing. Uh, in that book, because Kamala Harris, you know, I mean, you know, she is, you know, was a, a vicious prosecutor in California, jailed all kinds of people for smoking marijuana, and then laughed about it when, you know, when, when asked if she'd ever done it. And, you know, I mean, she, you know, Kamala Harris, you know, is is a pretty kind of a sadistic person. Um, but, you know, but she grew up as a leftist. I mean, her parents were both left wing activists and such. And then I argue in that book that left-wing politics uh, has two sides to it. Um, that on the one hand, left-wing politics is about striving for that feeling of oneness and of community, right? And getting beyond the greed and individualism and selfishness that kind of comes between us. But on the other side of it, there is kind of a destructive side of left-wing politics, which can just be kind of giving people permission to release their impulses, Right. Um, and that as uh, you know, the left is, is kind of talking about lifting social restraints and, you know, getting people, giving people permission to be angry, giving people permission to, to be less uh, controlling of their own behaviors. Um, and I argue that 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 in the history of communism, as we've seen, we can see both of those things that I would argue like, the, you know, the, the French Revolution and, uh, you know, the Great Terror and the Cultural Revolution in China. These events were very much about giving people permission to unleash their rage and destructive impulses. Whereas, you know, the strength, you know, when I talk about the Soviet Union rapidly industrializing, when you talk about China becoming a superpower, when you talk about Cuba's healthcare system, the strength of socialist countries has been not their ability to unleash people's rage and anger, but rather their ability to strive for that feeling of oneness and community. Um, and what I think is also interesting is that, you know, the socialist movement, you know, in the 20th century was very much an atheist movement because religion was identified with the ruling class. Religion was identified with feudalism and the feudal structures that they were dismantling. But nowadays, uh, that seems to have really changed. Uh, you know, uh, the, the leader of, of uh, Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, is Roman Catholic. Um, his, his predecessor, Hugo Chavez, was also Roman Catholic. Uh, Fidel Castro converted to Christianity during the 1990s and had confession with the Pope. Uh, Nicaragua, the slogan of the government is Christianity, socialism, and solidarity. Um, and in the Middle East, you know, the Ba'ath socialist movement, uh, that was Syria and Iraq, uh, they gave Islam a special recognition in their constitutions, even though they were secular governments. Uh, Gaddafi was very much a Muslim. Um, and in Iran, they, they insist their system is not socialism or capitalism. They call it not capitalism, but Islam. That's what they refer to their system as. Um, but it, it is very much a system where the state controls the means of production and operates them for the benefit of society. They have these local councils in every neighborhood called Bastige. And, you know, I mean, they don't call it socialism, but it's very much not a capitalist country and not a capitalist system. But spirituality is a big part of it. Um, and I think that's very interesting. And I know even now in China, there's been a revival of Confucianism um, and the Confucian tradition, you know, the culture <clears throat> during the Cultural Revolution, Mao very much, uh, you know, played up the idea that Confucius was the old society and they were getting rid of it. But now, you know, in modern China, Xi Jinping uh, and the Chinese Communist Party argued that kind of Confucius and Mao uh, kind of walk together in part of unique, uh, what makes China unique and kind of China's unique identity that's separate from the West. So I think that we're seeing kind of a shift in how communists and, and leftists and anti-imperialists relate to issues of religion and spirituality. And we're kind of realizing that that destructive impulse, right, that desire to tear things down and unleash your rage 
while that may have been useful to communists, you know, in, in the 20th century to come to power, uh, you know, that may have been useful, you know, in the time of Karl Marx when they were fighting against feudalism and the remnants of feudalism and the tradition of the French Revolution, that now those destructive impulses that maybe played a revolutionary role at one point have been hijacked by imperialism and hijacked by, by the Western capitalists. Um, and very much social media uh, and a lot of the, the, you know, the forces coming out of the West are very much about trying to unleash people's destructive impulses to create chaos and instability, to incite people against each other so that we can all be ruled over by Wall Street in London and the, you know, the emerging financial order, Silicon Valley, et cetera. So really, uh, the socialist movement is changing its orientation when it comes to how it, it operates psychologically. That feeling of oneness is becoming central, and those destructive impulses are becoming something that is being recognized to be problematic. And my book, City Builders and Vandals in Our Age, that's a, a point that I, I made throughout that book, uh, was that you know, it was kind of me analyzing this and, and figuring out where are we in the 20th century, because the Cold War is over. Uh, the Soviet Union's gone. Uh, you know, The old school Marxism-Leninism is not really you know, a big force in the world, but there is very clearly a difference between the East and the West. Uh, there's very clearly a contradiction between Western capitalism and the people in the world that are striving against it. So what's, what is the new difference about? And I argue this is, this is city builders and vandals, uh, and that this is the city building tendency, the constructive side of the human species, striving for that feeling of oneness and creativity, uh, and the destructive, you know, side of the human species that, you know, was kind of hijacked by the Roman Empire and then later by the British Empire. Uh, this is two sides of the human spirit and the human soul facing off with each other uh, as we kind of are hitting a turning point created by the computer revolution and technological progress. Uh, we're hitting a turning point where capitalism is not a sustainable system any longer. Uh, millions of people no longer have a place at the assembly line. We have to change our mode of production to survive. And so now we're seeing these two sides of the human psych psychology coming out and, and kind of playing out on the global stage and clashing with each other. Yeah, it's like a, there's a chunk of civilization that has at least had a taste of unity outside of like their nuclear family. That's usually where people begin getting this uh, taste is like when you have a child, you become automatically a little bit more selfless. And so then there's that feeling. And then usually you have like a friend and then your friend goes through something that's emotionally catastrophic. And then you hold space for them and you empathize and um, you have that sympathetic well-being that you're um, helping them go through the process. And so you like you slowly become, you know, more and more awakened to how humans are sharing an entire civilization and planet and how we're sharing it with 10 million other species um, and that we um, are breathing in the same oxygen that the phytoplankton and trees are enabling us in the photosynthesis process to to inhale and so there's you know there's so many interdependencies in that oneness web that exist that um people slowly wake up to them and then the, it's not only people like grassroots doing it but also people in positions of leadership around the planet waking up to that and like you're saying there's all these different unique tastes they're like 
different combinatorics where you have one like that's China, one that looks like Russia, one that looks like Saudi Arabia, one that looks like the US. But then like you were saying in your book that you'll always have people that are interested in um, oneness and engineering and prosperity and that type of stuff. And you'll always have some other people that maybe are a little bit less awake and more egocentric and that think that, you know, by going out and vandalizing things, they can have a bigger megaphone in sharing their messages and ideas. Um, but really, if they were to create architectural changes and go through these more oneness states of awakening, then they could make much greater impact. And so because ultimately it's a dialectic where we'll have um, this conservative and liberal in a dialectic and it'll constantly be fluxing and, you know, or the individualism and collectivism, you know, fluxing in ascension or the U.S. and China, um, science and spirituality. And so um, to sort of take the best of both and merge them and uplift them is really what you know, we talked about that in um, chapter seven of one of the visual books that, that we wrote called High Level Perception. It was called The Sorting Algorithm. It covered this exact, exact topic. So it's actually important for viewers as they're watching this video to look in, inward and look at what's going on inside where am I feeling any hatred or ill will or malevolence towards, towards people that don't have the same beliefs or ideas as me? And how can I um, feel more whole and feel more one with people that may have a different set of ideas than I do? And how can we equanimously, calmly, lovingly even sit down and just have a conversation about, you know, what are some of the good things that we can maybe take from both of the viewpoints and see what kind of a project we could um, put forth into the world? So, there's a much more, if you look at two kids playing, right? The little kid from China or Iran or, or Argentina or the US, whatever, that these kids, when they're playing, um, that there's no, there's no concepts and ideas and that are like twisting and distorting their lens of, of perception. They still feel like innocent, playful children on planet Earth as one. And so a lot of it, the journey also to oneness as an adult is to, um, to become more innocent and to become more um, open to a planetary harmony. But in order to do that, like we're talking about, we need um, to hone in on the basic needs being met around the planet. People can't be starving and not have access to clean water and not have fractional ownership in um the companies that they're actually building as employees, but that they're getting no fractional ownership of the company. And so there's a, that could be a good um, way for us to venture. So this seems to be a main tenant, we could say, potentially of, um, of CPI in general. Um, so, Here's the, the Center for Political Innovation. And so when you guys go to this page, the link's in the bio, cpiusa.org. And we also talked about this quite a bit on the show with Ryan Cotton. Um, you can look at this four-point plan to rescue the country, 
and that you have um, mass mobilization to rebuild the country, public ownership of natural resources, public control of banking, economic bill of rights. And so what you'll see here, you know, you see a pretty continuous theme, you know, this public ownership, public control. Um, and so this would probably be a good way to talk to, to Caleb about this is that it seems like the idea the idea it's it's more like a really it's like more like a biological archetype really when you look at um the way that fungal networks talk to trees underground in a two-way resource exchange or how um the internet evolved or how decentralization and cryptocurrencies are evolving um that it's very decentralized it's very universalized and there's more and more desire now across the planet for people to have fractional ownership where we have like andy bittner was just on the show and so he has the actual architectures that enable people to contribute uh funds towards their cities uh, re regenerative energy infrastructures. And then they become fractional owners, they get dividends, um, all this type of good stuff. And so there's um, there's a whole new suite of, of ideas that are very like oriented in our biology that are up and coming. And it seems like that seems to be a core aspect of CPI is um, public ownership, everybody getting a, a share of the pie, not like um, and we also, I think you're you're familiar with this. We brought this up on the show with uh, with Ryan as well. The WTF happened in 1971. Uh, um, this is the this is the bifurcation of of median male income with uh, real GDP per capita in 1971. Wow. Um, yeah, and so we're this. Uh, this one is a pretty good visualization of it. And yeah, and so there's we're, we're shifting away from this where more and more people um, are, are flatlining. Meanwhile, a very, very few people are reaping um, the vast majority of fruits. So would you say that that's a core essence of CPI, that style of architecture? To, yeah. Sure. Well, um, I, I think that the issue, again, with when it comes to the issue of, of natural resources, right? You know, the way the country's natural resources are operated has a very big impact. Um, it has a, an impact on the environment. Uh, it has an impact on communities. And on top of that, it's one of the main sources of wealth. Uh, you know, oil, natural gas, coal, timber. I mean, this is how people make their money. And all throughout the United States, you will find communities in Pennsylvania and Ohio, Oklahoma and Alabama, where the people are just getting poorer and poorer and poorer. But fracking companies and uh, you know uh, logging companies and natural gas corporations and oil companies are getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. And why is it that the communities where these resources come from are being economically devastated? but yet they're generating more wealth than ever before. Why is this happening? Well, it's because the, this, this natural wealth, I mean, it's just you know in the soil of the United States or, or grown, this wealth uh, is in the hands of private owners. Uh, and so the communities all around this wealth can get impoverished, uh, but the people, uh, the people, uh, you know, they, they don't, they're not, not getting any benefit from the natural resources. I mean, this is all over the world too. I mean, 
you know, uh, Ni Nigeria is a very wealthy country. It is the top oil exporter in Africa. But if you look at, at Nigeria, especially the Niger Delta region, where most of Nigeria's oil is extracted, the people there live in just utter poverty. Because that oil belongs to ExxonMobil and BP and Shell and Chevron, it doesn't belong to Nigeria. And the profits from that oil and the management of that oil is all you know, being done for the benefit of these corporations. And uh, so the idea is that you know, as our country is getting poorer and living standards are dropping, et cetera, that maybe this should be changed. And maybe the way uh, the oil and natural gas and coal and timber the country has operated should be strategically planned out by the community for what's in the interest of the community and the wealth, you know, the profits generated from selling our natural resources should go to the community uh, rather than to these private owners who are operating them only in their interest. And when it comes to banking, it's a similar thing, right? Um, you know, every major religion, Christianity, Islam, Judaism has, has forbid the lending of money at interest. And there's a reason for that because the lending of money at interest leads to a group of people who make money by having money. Uh, they, they, they have money and then they lend some money to somebody and they get more money. They didn't do anything. Nothing got created in the process, you know, and they, they make money by having money. Then pretty soon they become exponentially wealthier than everybody else. And governments are in debt to them. And the whole economy is centered around these people that make money by having money, right? And it's something you don't want to have in your society. So I would argue that credit should be centralized in the hands of the community, whether it be the local community, the state community, or the federal community. And if when people, you know, they want to take out a loan to get a house, well, they make the case to their community that it would be better if they had a home. They want to start a business. Well, they make the case to their community that my, my business will benefit the community. And when they pay back their loan, then the, the, the interest, instead of going into the hands of a private owner, goes into the public budget and it takes the tax burden off of the community. Right. And we can use that money to build more schools and hospitals and such. And and it's about having an economy organized for the for the community overall public ownership rather than than for a small group of private owners who can you know can continue to enrich themselves while society falls apart right if the lending of money and the control of natural resources were done you know collectively with, with understanding that we need to benefit all of society i think we would have a much better economic result than simply letting the chaos of the market uh, the anarchy of production uh, handle these things gosh that's such a good example with um, natural resources across the planet, giving the example um, in Africa, there's many other examples like this where you you just you you need people to have their basic needs being met, and the resources are coming from those areas anyway. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, there is a upfront investment from a wealthier part of the world that comes and and so they get a fraction of the pie as well but to take the vast majority of the fraction and give nearly scraps breadcrumbs to the region is absurd and it's um and it's exact so again when you recognize that you can take rather than a hundred billion dollars over 10 years. Instead, you only take $25 billion over 10 years. And that other 75 billion would go into the local economy. Because again, that's not different than you. You've only assumed that those people, other people are different than you are, but you're not because you've assumed yourself to be separate from this one intelligence that everything is. And so that's really important to remember for all of our um, 
especially wealthy uh, people around the world is that, that 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 is you. That is you. That extra um, b- meeting basic needs is literally going to you actualizing your fullest potential in that that part of the world. Sure. I mean, I think that the health of one is the health of all. And this pandemic has really proved that, right? I mean, you know, if the government had responded to this pandemic by saying, you're on your own, folks, uh, we would we would have a little bit of a problem, wouldn't we? You know, and that, you know, the health of one is the health of all. And when when people in a society are unhealthy, the whole society around them gets unhealthy. And we human beings are collective creatures. We work together in groups. Uh, you know, we were tribal at one point. We built civilization since then. You know, I mean, we've always been collective creatures. And I would argue that individual mental health is very much tied into how you relate to other people. Uh, you know, um, you know, people that suffer from schizophrenia, you talk to them and probably the main issue that they have going on is their ability to communicate with other people has been kind of destroyed. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they're not able to communicate with other people effectively. They kind of exist more and more and more in their own kind of isolation where they start to develop delusions and such. Um, and that, uh, that a lot of mental health is problems that people have in their relationship with other people. You look at the, the personality disorders, you talk about someone being a narcissist, you talk about someone being histrionic, you talk about borderline personality disorder. Again, these people, it's not that they have a problem with themselves that, you know, if they were alone on a desert Island, they would have the problem. The problem is the way they relate to other people is tainted. And often that can be from trauma or bad experiences that they had, or, or, you know, they, they had, you know, parents that brought them up to see the world in a certain way, but, you know, but, but mental health is very much tied into other people. And if you look at since the pandemic, uh, as we've had the lockdowns and all that, the, the rate of depression and anxiety in the United States has multiplied by four. We are having four times the depression and anxiety we had before. Well, why is that? Because people have been social distancing. They've been isolating from each other. And the more people are separated from each other, the more that they're cut off and the more they're just kind of left alone, uh, the, the, the more unhealthy they're going to be. The more you can connect with other people, the more you can be part of a group and feel like you know, you're able to have empathy and share other people's interests, the, the healthier you're going to be. Um, and that, that, that understanding of mental health, I think, is very important. And that increasingly we've been taught to view mental health from a biological standpoint, right? Um, you know, if this person's depressed or anxious, they just have a chemical imbalance. Well, if you look at the number of people that are taking antidepressants in our society right now, this is not simply a chemical problem. This is a society-wide problem. I think that the rugged individualism of Western society, this belief that, you know, everyone's on their own, you know, you know, you know, sink or swim, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This has taken a toll on us as a country, uh, psychologically. I think it is, it has hurt us uh, as a society. Uh, it's had a very negative, negative impact. Human beings are collective in nature. And now we're at the point where we can't even really mobilize to address society-wide problems, right? I mean, you know, all, all the different capitalists are trying to make profits for themselves and all the different government officials are tied to different factions that have different agendas. And you get a situation like the pandemic, you get a situation like the country's crumbling infrastructure, something needs to be done, but no one can bring themselves to do it because again, we're all kind of doing this individualism thing. You know, and, and individualism isn't inherently bad. We needed a kind of a wave of individualism, I think, to bring down the feudal, you know, hierarchies that existed, you know, in medieval Europe, right? To have a new level of freedom as, as a new level of economic development, uh, you know, created a situation where it was possible to have freedom of speech and freedom of religion and freedom of assembly that, yes, it was necessary to push for a new level of individualism, you know, in response to, uh, to the oppressive feudal systems that were holding back social progress. 
But now we've entered a stage where this radical individualism and the, and the philosophy of individual liberalism, which is the politics of, of individualism. And I, I don't mean like Democrats like liberals. I mean, you know, philosophical liberalism, economic liberalism is free markets. You know, uh, social liberalism is freedom for the individual. But but both of them emphasize individualism above all else. And it's kind of a rejection of collectivism. Liberalism is kind of out of control, and we've forgotten that we are one human species, and that uh, that the you know the future of all mankind is tied up together, and the world is more connected economically speaking than ever before. We're tied into each other. You're on one end of the country, I'm on another, but we're talking to each other right now. The potential for us to be more connected to each other and tied in with each other, and to really care for each other and really work together to you know achieve everyone's potential is higher than ever before. Um, but we're being held back, I think, by the economic base, which is profits in command, capitalism. And I think that's holding us back. And I think we need to move beyond it and have a more collective economic system that can then allow the human species to become more creative and solve problems as we never have before. Yeah. So well said. Yeah, there's a one of the core things that you brought up right there that I think is instrumental is that you have what appears to be so many different individualistic interests that are blossoming where it's completely different where two or three or four people want to create different music or science or whatever people want to do. But when you have... Um, like you were describing, Fortune 500 CEOs and Congress people, and that are wondering, well, how do I extract for myself? That's a completely different expression than is how do I make some great music or some great engineering or whatever. And so we that that whole extractive cadence or rhythm that we've been kind of flowing with has been. Um, it's it's really come to this point of just a big pressure cooker to snap us out of that style of relating with each other in a way that is, okay, this is a separate person. I'm talking to a separate person right now. And my objective, my goal is to extract as much as I can for myself in this situation. And that is like, that's insanity. Um, and then you take that and you port that over into two countries talking across the planet. And that's even more insanity. And so now the conversation is more about, you know, you, you have that con as you're in that convo, it's, this is one engaging with itself. And because I know that we will come to an understanding where both of us can have our basic needs being met, where both of us in our countries as well around the world can have the natural resources that we have in those countries be serving our local basic needs and also be have fractional ownership so that the whole pie can blossom, that the whole flower can, can blossom beautifully, where you know, in, in 10 years, we should hear about Djibouti and their incredible art and their incredible science, and their incredible prosperity. Um, and that, that, that's, that's really caring about the brothers and sisters across, across the world that when you know that 
that you want that story so badly that you're willing to sacrifice your, like we gave in that example, your 75 billion extra that you were going to take to instead take 25 billion and give the other 75 to that local area and let them prosper, let them actualize. Yeah. CPI is a great way to do that because it basically, um, it basically takes the, um, everything that we're talking about right now and puts it into practical architectural implementations. Would you say that that's, that's about it? That's the idea. Um, you know, so much left-wing material uh, purely focuses on what people are against. Uh, you know, it's, I'm against this, I'm against that, I'm against, well, I, I, my vision for CPI is rather than focusing on what we're against, focusing on what we're for, putting forward concrete proposals to address the problems facing the country. Um, and getting people beyond just this kind of angry, you know, we need a revolution, we need to tear things down. Aren't you mad? I'm mad too. Yeah, we're all mad. Let's be mad together. But rather, what concrete proposals can we put forward and bring to our elected officials and people in our community and say, this is what we're for, this is what we need. Um, and it's not just uh, those four points. Uh, we're also uh, in favor of fusion energy, right? Uh, the climate crisis makes it clear fossil fuels are not the future of the world. Uh, but fossil fuels, the reason that the fossil fuel economy is still in, in effect uh, is because the world economy is centered around Wall Street and London. I mean, Wall Street banks and London stock exchange entities are, are tied in with the global oil markets. I mean, if you if you get on an airplane, that's oil. Uh, you get in a car, that's oil. Anything plastic in your home, that's oil, right? Oil, the whole global economy runs on oil and the oil markets are dominated by four corporations, ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, and Chevron, right? And if you include the French co company Total, the French oil company, you're talking about 80% of the world's oil production right there. You want to talk about an ultra monopoly. Those five corporations are 80% of the world's oil supply. So that's an ultra monopoly. And they don't want to give up that ultra monopoly. They're at the top of the world, right? If anyone wants oil, they got to go through them pretty much. Um, and that's not a good setup. And fossil fuels are not good for the environment. Uh, it's not good for the world. But what is their solution? It just so happens they have all the wealth, so they get to pay for the, the environmental movement and the climate change movement. And they say, oh, we'll just go backwards. You know what I mean? We need to reduce consumption. Uh, all these people around the world, they got to be poorer. Hey, this country in Africa, they want to build a coal power plant. Well, that's not good for the environment. So you can't do that. You just got to keep, you know, without electricity because it's for the environment, folks. You know, they stop environmental projects and, and, and you know, power plants being constructed and such, and such in, in South Africa and many places. Well, I would argue the solution to climate change is moving forward. What we need is to get beyond fossil fuels to fusion energy, right? The, the fusion energy, look, China, they are huge supporters of fusion energy. Russia, even though it's a natural gas and oil-based economy, they still, they strongly call for global cooperation around fusion energy. Iran is working on fusion energy. We've got some scientists here in the United States, like Dr. Eric Lerner in New Jersey. And there's, you know, there's facilities in Massachusetts and elsewhere who are working on it. We say that, that fusion energy should be a united global effort, right? Yeah. That all the different people working on it should, we should have a new like UN type territory, right? The UN, you go to the UN, it's international territory. The UN, it's like right over there. It's like three blocks away from where I'm at now, but it's not part of the United States. I have to show a passport if I want to get in there because it's an international territory. Well, we need to build a kind of a, a fusion energy United Nations in the center of, of the American heartland, in Kansas or Iowa, I think. We need to just carve out some territory 
and then have a united global effort. Every country that is working on fusion energy fly in all their scientists. We supply them with all the resources we need to work day and night to get fusion energy. It's an emergency. We need to get off of fossil fuels. The only way we're going to get off of it is to get to a higher higher fuel source that can generate energy more efficiently. We're not going to, you know, wind, windmills are nice. I'm not against windmills. I'm not against solar panels, but they're not going to solve the problem. Only fusion energy really is beyond fossil fuels, is stronger than fossil fuels. That is going to solve the problem. And we need to have it be a global effort. We can't have it be a competition where China is competing with us and we're competing with them. It needs to be a united effort so that when fusion energy is achieved, it, it, it results in all of humanity sharing in the benefit so that it doesn't become that one country has fusion energy and uses it to dominate other countries, right? Rather, it should be one, one you know, human community developing fusion energy, and as a species, we come together and get beyond fossil fuels. Um, that's what needs to happen, uh, and, and it's gonna happen. I mean, we are gonna get fusion energy sooner or later, but it needs to happen as soon as possible in order to alleviate the suffering that, that we're seeing around the world in order to get off of the the outdated, outmoded, fossil fuel-based global order. Um, we need to get beyond that. And uh, we need to have a unified vision for humanity. And fusion energy is, is, is a big part of it. So the construction of what we call fusion city, this vision of fusion city, we call, it, we call for the creation of fusion city in the center of the United States, an international joint Manhattan project, not to build a bomb, uh, but instead to you know, rescue humanity from fossil fuels. That's one of our central beliefs is we need to build fusion city. Um, and, uh, that's a solution. It's not a problem. You know what I mean? And that's, that it's a solution to a problem. And we can now go around to different politicians and different elected officials and different people that are talking about climate change and say, what about fusion city? Are you for fusion city or are you against it? And if you're against this, tell us, how could you possibly be against this project? You know, that's what needs to be done. We need to raise the alarm, uh, about the need for fusion city. And again, by putting forward what we're for, not what we're against, what we're for, that's a way of bringing people together uh, that I think is is very effective. Yes, exactly. What we're for, we're for meeting basic needs across the planet. Everyone having access to clean air, water, food, shelter, electricity, healthcare, education. And we're for uh, fusion technology. We're for uh, shifting away from increasing the parts per million of CO2 um, we're against ocean acidification. Again, we're for fusion, and that automatically makes us uh, pro-oceans um, as well, which is great. I, I love that. And uh, pro-environment, pro-keeping uh, our trees. So again, uh, pro-forest, not anti-deforestation, but pro-forests. You know, so there's all these different ways to also structure this um, in, a, in story that helps um, people get it. And I love, I love the idea of having a UN style, um, international global effort on fusion and plopping that down in Kansas or Iowa, um, bringing some of the best from around the world. Actually, remember how I mentioned Westlake university in, in China, in Hangzhou, that's basically what they did there. They made this, um, private public partnership there in China and they brought, some of the greatest scientists from around the world there to start their labs. And it really interestingly, rather than some of the other universities around the world, where if you 
make some sort of great innovation, the university keeps it. Um, that at Westlake, they have agreements like a 50-50 uh, ownership uh, if you make a great innovation or advancement. And so that would be another big core thing at the F Fusion City facility, yeah, is something like that, to incentivize the scientists and engineers and researchers and technologists to gain a greater amount of ownership in what is created as well. And then for, um, for that technology to then go and empower all of the car flight cargo ships trading across the oceans all of the different um use that we use today like you were also mentioning plastics is another big one um and so because you see all these different indigenous communities around the planet that are basically saying guys what are you doing like don't you get what's happening don't you see, feel it? Don't you recognize that you can't? Everything's so deeply interdependent. The hydrological cycle is cyclic and, in, and interdependent. You can't just take a poop and then expect it to not come back and rain on top of your house. You know, you you gotta. You can't just make a Pacific garbage patch in the ocean and not expect it. <laughs> All this type of stuff to to feed back into, you know, we're, we're having these parts per trillion of these pharmaceuticals being discovered in our water supplies. Now there's all these different types of things that, that we just can't filter out through sanitation right now. And so we need all of these, like basically X prizes in a sense, right? So we need the CPI's four point plan. We need to crowdsource innovation for that. We need the X prize style dynamics across the planet the style of global coherence around these big initiatives. Um, yeah, this is great. And I, and I love also the, the practicality of someone that, um, that currently is wondering, okay, well, how do I get involved in CPI? How do I get involved in, in fractional ownership? How do I go from somebody that is barely making my basic needs be met? What would, what would you, suggest well i mean you can sign up on the website uh you just go to cpiusa.org and we have a form if you want to get involved and, and we will plug you in um i think you can just go to uh you know um join cpi and uh there you go um and right now you just fill that form out and we'll get back to you um and we have around the country uh, in many parts of the country people have formed reading reading groups around our textbook um, this is our textbook we are city builders uh, the Center for Political Innovation Educational Manual. Um, and, uh, you know, it's uh, it's available um, and you can get them in bulk. And people have been reading this book and discussing it. People have been doing Zoom discussions of it. There's people in Australia discussing it. Uh, there's a Chicago reading group of it that just started. There's a group of people in, in San Angelo, Texas. They call themselves San Angelo Solidarity. They're a group of activists, Latino uh, and white, uh, and they they gather once a week and they read from the manual. Um, and uh, you know, there's uh, there's also a, a reading group here in New York City. There's a reading group in in California, in, in Los Angeles that's just starting. Um, you know, I mean, we people are coming together to discuss this book uh, and to kind of use it, you know, as the basis for for trying to you know to put the vision of the Center for Political Innovation into effect. 
um, and the reading groups around this, it gets people talking. The point of this book is to get people talking. Um, you know, after every section, uh, there's questions. Uh, and the book, you know, it's not simply there's an essay by me about city builders and vandals, but there's also there's an, a, a speech by Roosevelt in the book. There's a speech by Henry Wallace, uh, who was the vice president uh, uh, at one point uh, uh, and, and ran on a peace platform, uh, you know, in 1948 against Harry Truman. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, there's stuff from Mao Zedong, the founder of China, in it. Um, you know, there's uh, there's an essay by Edward Bellamy, uh, who wrote the the science fiction novel Looking Backward, which is like a bestseller in the 1880s, uh, which was about like a futuristic socialist America and what it might be like. And we have one of his essays called The Parable of the Water Tank. Uh, in, in, in the book that's included. And it's just, and we have Albert Einstein's essay, Why Socialism is also included in the book. Um, and the book is designed to get people talking about these ideas that the Center for Political Innovation puts forward. And people are reading it uh, and discussing it. And some people are doing it online. Some people are having meetups. And, uh, and that's one thing that, you know, if you can, if you want to get involved in the Center for Political Innovation, uh, it's one thing we can definitely help you to start do is start having reading groups around this, this book. Um, but we're also having educational seminars around the country uh, that we're starting to do. Um, you know, with the pandemic, it's a little difficult, but we did one in Pennsylvania that was very successful. Uh, that was at the end of ju uh, June. Um, and we're about to do one in, in California. Um, you know, it, it's already pretty much full at this point, which is exciting because, uh, you know, I mean, but it's but it's happening. And uh, and as things open up and we can start having, you know, using big spaces and big auditoriums and such, we want to start doing doing them all across the country. I mean, some people want me to go to Ann Arbor, Michigan. People want me to go to Chicago. People want me to go to Texas. Uh, we're making this happen. We have a team of people that are on the streets of New York City every day. They're called the John Brown Volunteers, named after the great anti-slavery fighter, John Brown, who kind of gave his life in the struggle to abolish slavery. Um, and, you know, they're out every day on the streets of New York. Uh, we have buttons uh, that they're distributing that say uh, cancel student debt, that say end the wars and bring the troops home. And we have, you know, palm cards about the Center for Political Innovation and about our four point plan, what we believe in. Um, and they're out on the streets every single day. They're in the parks here in New York City. They're they're on the subways and and they're out there doing it. And uh, they are eventually going to start moving to different cities around the country as we have different events. Right now, they're based in New York because that's where most of our resources and our organization is headquartered. But this is a team, you know, this John Brown Volunteers Group. These are full time people. This is their primary job. You know, I mean, they might do another job on the side, but they live together collectively and they are dedicated to this vision of, of building building an America uh, where working people's needs come first and not the profits of a few and, and really putting our vision into, into perspective. So this is very exciting. I mean, this is a very, very exciting moment. And I feel like I'm at the beginning of something very, very exciting. You know, um, years ago, people asked me when I first started moving toward building the Center for Political Innovation, the Center for Political Innovation, people asked me why I didn't form a new party. Why didn't you just, you know, we got the Communist Party, we got the Socialist Party. Why don't you form a new party? And I, I decided not to do that because most of these parties are very, very irrelevant. And there's way too many of them. And they're competing with each other and they don't like each other. And they've been kind of doing the same thing for a while. And I've said to socialists in the United States, we need to get out of the movement and to the masses. Right. We need to get to average Americans who've never met a socialist before, never met a Marxist or a leftist before and find out, you know, find out what they believe, engage with them and put forward policy solutions that can win them over. And we need to get out of this little circle of, of leftists who've all known each other for years and have their long grievances against each other. Are you a Trotskyite? Are you a Maoist? Are you a follower of Enver Hoxha? Are you an anarchist? You know, get out of that and get to average Americans with a real program 
that could actually be implemented. I can see Fusion City being built. I can see our four-point plan being enacted. These are things that if you tell people you're for them, people can see them happening. Now, I think that in order to enact them, you know, you'd have to really challenge the power of big business. And in doing so, I mean, yes, it would lead to a transformation of society, but these are real concrete demands. They're not abstract philosophies, abstract notions. These are real policy solutions. And I think that is the way, you know, if you go to other countries, this is how, you know, communist parties tend to operate is they have their program, they have what they're for. And they run in the election advocating things like what we're advocating, jobs programs, uh, meeting people's basic needs, construction, et cetera. Um, that's, that's how they operate. Here in the United States, communist groups will give you this vague answer about we need a, a revolution to tear down the old system or something. That's not real politics. Uh, you know, uh, you know, and, and we need to get serious. Right. I mean, that's why I wear a suit for goodness sakes. You know, people say that, that me wearing a suit, that people find that to be odd. Well, serious politicians wear suits. You know, and, uh, you know, when I was working with a labor union uh, years ago, uh, they oriented their their labor union organizers to wear suits because, you know, that to show that they're serious. Right. And that we need to, you know, less and less sound like, you know, hippies that are screaming against the man and more and more sound like we're going to be running the country someday. Because I believe we will be. I think that people running the country will be influenced by the Center for Political Innovation. We're not a political party. We're not running for office or anything like that. But I think that our ideas will be taken seriously by politicians. Uh, I think we will have an impact. Uh, and I think that we need to act like it. We need to act like we want to be taken seriously. Cool. The sounds like there's actually a pretty good amount of access points that are really um, fundamental, like We Are City Builders is a great one. And then also just um, getting involved in those like smaller knit communities in the different cities and then getting involved with joining CPI as well. And then um, coming together. I think yeah, Ryan was mentioning that you guys have an upcoming in Santa Barbara yes. conference and that's the one that's already full. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty full. I mean, limited space and with the pandemic restrictions and stuff. But we want to start eventually, you know, just having big auditoriums. Full of, you know, I mean, why not? Right. I mean, and then we have this team to go out and promote it. And that's that's kind of the idea. Right. Is that there is so much interest in what we have to say. I mean, the amount of interest that we've generated just in, in the you know, we've been operating for about a year. I think we've been having weekly Zoom calls. The amount of interest we've generated, the amount of, of fascination with what we're about and interest and the amount of people who contacted us and wanted to get involved is not a small number. People are hungry for this, right? I mean, this is, this is Marxism. Sure. This is socialism. This is, you know, these ideas are, are not necessarily new, but we're doing it in a new way. People in the USA haven't been doing it this way for a long time. You know, I like to think we come from the tradition of Eugene Debs uh, and Gus Hall and William C. Foster and you know, the, the Black Panthers and, uh, and you know, uh, other, other leaders, W.E.B. Du Bois. We're from that tradition, uh, but we're applying it in a unique way in our unique times. And I think that that's very exciting. I mean, we're, we have an optimistic vision. You know, socialism is fundamentally an optimistic philosophy. It says we can get to a better society we can move ahead and we're trying to bring optimism and constructive thinking back to socialism. And then when, when someone is, uh, yeah, in practical technological advances like fusion city and like this fractional ownership and all this good stuff, when somebody in the city is given the little, um, 
pin and whatnot when it's talking about um, ending uh, wars and about bringing troops home and about meeting basic needs is the, the action point for them is then to get signed up, read We Are City Builders, uh, go through the Zoom calls on the weeks, and then also begin sort of putting out these octopus tentacles into the different projects for meeting the basic needs locally in their cities and that type of stuff. Is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely. That is the idea, you know, and, uh, you know, we've collected a number of emails, um, you know, we have, we've handed out at least at this point, at least 2000 palm cards have been handed out on the street uh, about, you know, and they say, we are city builders. We need a government of action to fight for working families. And, and we have collected lots of emails and talked to lots of people, um, you know, and, and that slogan, that's kind of, you know, you saw the four point plan, but the slogan that we have used is we need a government of action to fight for working families uh, because we've been, you know, we've had it pumped into our heads that the government is best that governs least, right? That the government should just keep its hands off, let the economy, um, you know, take care of itself. Well, we argue that no, that the state and the government does have an obligation to the people. We need a government of action that will take action to protect working families. Uh, you know, if a parent, you know, uh, in their, you know, is, is sending their kid to school without proper clothing uh, in the wintertime and they're, and they're cold, they can be arrested. That's called criminal neglect. Well, I think the government of the United States has committed criminal neglect. So many people in this country are hungry. So many people are without health care, without education. Uh, the roads are falling apart. Uh, the water is not being properly purified. All of this indicates to me that, uh, that our government is in dereliction of duty and we need a government that will step up to the plate. And uh, if you can go back to um, go back to long before anything in the 20th century, you go back to the, the 1400s in Europe, you go back to the Dark Ages. During the Dark Ages, the reason it was a dark age, uh, you know, it's, it's remembered as a, a, a bad time, is because there was this notion that basically people existed only to serve those who were above them. Uh, if you were a peasant, you existed to serve the noble. If you were a slave, you existed to serve your owner. If you were a commoner, you existed to serve the king. But things started to change with the introduction of the notion that it went both ways, but the rise of what you can call modern statecraft. You read the Treaty of Westphalia. Uh, it talks about how, you know, how the sovereign has an obligation to the people. And you, you got some forward thinking monarchs who said, you know, we really ought to start, you know, educating our population. We really ought to start building infrastructure. Uh, you know, we really ought to start, uh, you know, funding. And, and it was through kind of governments that said, actually, we do have an obligation to serve our people. Uh, that's where we got the music of Bach and Beethoven. And that's where we got the, the work of Leonardo da Vinci. And uh, that's where we got uh, the, uh, the, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the, the work of Shakespeare. You know, what was Shakespeare's, uh, you know, his, his theater troupe? What were they called? They were the, the king's men or the Lord Chamberlain's men. I mean, it was the, the government said, you know what, we want to make our people better. So we're going to start having plays performed for them. Right. And then suddenly there became this notion that the job of the government was not just to have people serve it, but it went the other way around. The government had a no obligation to serve the people. And that's what really got the ball rolling with human history, right? I mean, the fall of the Roman Empire was very devastating. I mean, you know, it took Europe uh, 1,100 years to recover in terms of population from the fall of the Roman Empire. And really what was kind of the turning point uh, that got, you know, got us out of the, just the chaos and confusion 
and, and demoralization and pessimism that came from the fall of the Roman Empire and got us back on the road to, you know, city building and construction was a change in consciousness, this idea that there is an obligation to serve the people. And part of that was, you know, that, that among the elite, there was some, you know, there were some secret societies, there was some whispering and, the, you know, the teachings of Plato uh, were being studied and the Platonic school of thought was being studied. And you had, you know, uh, chemistry and science being taught, you know, the alchemical tradition, you know, behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, you had, finally, you had Copernicus, uh, who was brave enough to come forward and say, you know, based on my research, the the earth is not the center of the universe. The sun is actually the center of the universe. And that was, you know, he risked being burned at the stake for saying that because the church said the earth was the center of the universe. But he, with his primitive telescope and his mathematical calculations, discovered that no, no, uh, you know, the, the, the earth is not the center of the universe. Uh, and in fact, the earth is revolving around the sun. Um, you know, and that was a huge breakthrough. But he wouldn't have been able to do that if there hadn't been an effort uh, behind the scenes uh, by by people who were knowledgeable and skilled to kind of whisper in each other's ear and support each other and gradually get the ear of some powerful people like monarchs and start to change things around and get out of the dark ages mindset. Um, and that's how things started to change. And I think we need to get back to the notion of serving the people. We need to demand that our government serve the people. And part of the neoliberal ideology, part of the, the economics of, of Adam Smith and Milton Friedman and Friedrich von Hayek uh, and Alan Greenspan and Ayn Rand, part of their thinking is the government should just keep its hands off. Well, I think that's fundamentally wrong. Uh, the government shouldn't keep its hands off. The state has always played a role in pushing excuse me, pushing society forward. And the artist, I would say, has an extremely important role, you know? And totally. one of the problems that we have in our society now is that art is commercialized, right? And when art is commercial, it, it doesn't want to take risks, right? I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're an artist, right? If you're, if you're making movies or you're right, right, making music and all of that, you need to be able to try to do things that no one's ever done before, right? If you're going to you know, be a part of art is you have to do something new. But the problem is that a capitalist always wants a return on their investment. And, and sometimes when you do something as an artist, as a painter, as a poet, as a musician, as a, uh, sometimes you're going to take a risk and it's not going to work. And, and so if, if it's purely about making money, um, the problem is that, you know, you know, you're not going to get the funding. The person funding is going to say, no, I need to make sure I get my money back on this. So no, you cannot take that risk. And it used to be that the role of the artist was to try and make society better. The artist's job was to make you smarter, make you better with the art. They were teaching you. They were engaging you. They were forcing your mind to go to places it had never gone before, et cetera. But now art does the opposite. In order to guarantee that it will sell, it kind of takes things to the lowest common denominator. Um, and that's the opposite of what art is supposed to do. I've talked many times about how I feel like uh, grotesqueness it has taken the place of creativity in so many areas, right? Nowadays, so many movies, you know, instead of coming up with a comedy, it's just brilliantly funny and makes you laugh, they gross you out. And you kind of laugh because you, you're grossed out. Instead of coming up with a horror movie, it's very scary and suspenseful. Instead, they make a movie full of blood and gore that grosses you out. And then you're like grossed out. And so you're kind of scared, right? Instead of making an action movie, it's so exciting and all of that. They just gross you out with a lot of violence. And you're kind of grossed out. And that they, they've kind of discovered that grossing you out and making you kind of gag and kind of shocking you uh, can take the place of, of what you know, good art has been doing for thousands of years, right? Um, and, it, and it takes the work out of it too, because it's like an easy filler. 
Um, and, and that's a problem. And I think that we need to get back to the notion that the artist uh, has a, an important role in society. You know, that the TV, uh, what goes on television should be, should be done in a way of trying to make the country better, not trying to make profits for advertisers and the same for the music and the same for the, for the poetry and, and the same for theater and, and the same for, for art. Art has a very important role in teaching you how to think. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, and, I, and you know, I'm a little bit critical. I like, I've been to a few Wagner operas uh, and I like Wagner's music, but I, I recognize that Wagnerian music is very much about emotional manipulation, right? You know, it's about emotional manipulation. He's emotionally manipulating you. But that if you listen to Bach and Beethoven, it's a little bit better because they're not emotionally manipulating you. They're forcing you to kind of pay attention to the patterns that they're making in the music. And, and it can have an emotional impact, but it's a much deeper one because you're intellectualizing at first. It's not simply like hitting you on the gut level. It's hitting you on an intellectual level. The pattern of the notes and what are they going to do next hits you on an intellectual level. And then by in, through the intellectual process, you're then at that point, uh, you know, you're, you're then, you know, responding to what you've learned from the music in an emotional way. And it has a much better impact on you. And I think that's an important thing as well, that, that, you know, when we talk about art being pornographic, I mean, it's not literally like naked people, but it's appealing to you simply in a climactic sexual, you know, way, just driving emotions into you. And that can be a little bit problematic. You want art to appeal to you in an intellectual way that stimulates you, makes you think, and then gives you an emotional response. Yeah, this is the beauty of meeting basic needs is that then you get all of the great explosion in art. And also when when we get people like the um, 2,200 billionaires across the planet that wake up more and more to the oneness, you get great things like what the Medici family, like you listed, did with you have Michelangelo and Botticelli and um, da Vinci and Galileo and you get that big explosion of renaissance and we want more artistic scientific spiritual renaissance to happen and the only way to really truly do that is to just look at how like mycorrhizal networks work how do fungi and trees do a two-way resource exchange underground because they know it's one intelligence. It 95% of plants work with fungus underground. And so the, similarly, that's what we're talking about with this wealth being able to, in a sense, create a more of a fractional meeting basic needs and creating the fractional ownership within the social contract so that like these smaller seedlings in the understory they have these mother trees that then and this is great work by suzanne simmered that they send the extra that they get from from photosynthesis they make extra sugar sending it to and sending carbon to the extra uh, seedlings and and smaller um, trees in the understory and that that's uh, that's a great way to visualize what could be the um the meeting more basic needs and getting more of the renaissance to be activated um and it's it's exciting like feeling into what will be possible artistically scientifically spiritually as as that happens and like use that as good fuel for yourselves um i love that and this is probably a good place to also ask you about on our on our way out, just to ask you about um, you, you do you see because Ryan and I spent some time talking about this on the show as well, and I wanted to mention this with you. Um, so, 
so science and spirituality, or another way to view it is like materialism and, and consciousness, that they are two sides of the same coin. They're not actually inseparable things. This is how um, I'd be curious to hear your take on this, that they play into one another where basically, um, especially given what we're talking about with CPI and stuff, you need the external architectures to be met like your basic needs in order for you to actually be able to have metacognition and some space to actually think about your thinking and stuff like that. Um, but you also, in a sense, need to turn inward towards your consciousness and become more aware of oneness and become more aware of that so that then that can play into your architecture of the material world do you see those two interplaying like that well I, I think what you're saying is that when you give people when people are able to have their basic needs met that gives them more space to then start to look inward and um and that's absolutely true in my own life in my own life experience i mean there were times in my life where i was struggling to get by economically selling my blood plasma working at gas stations barely making enough and just you know, and at that point, was I delve? Was I doing deep inner work and thinking about what my motivations are? No, I was just trying to get by. And it wasn't until things in my life got a little more stable and all that that I was actually able to do some, you know, reflection and look inward. Um, but I also want to say, when you talk about, you know, spiritual and, and materialism, you know, it, it is interesting because, you know, I mean, when I first got involved in leftist and communist groups, you know, they are very, they tend to be very atheist oriented, right? And the the, the Marxist philosophy is dialectical materialism, all that exists in the in the universe is matter but that matter is constantly in a state of motion um and you know there are some marxists that even go as far as criticizing einsteinian physics and saying that einstein says matter and energy are separate and that's a spiritual conception all that matter is just energy and, mo and that, that this is a big part of the marxian philosophy but it was really when i went to iran and i went on that ship to yemen uh that i had a spiritual awakening because I realized, you know, while I was on that ship for 13 days and we talked about religion a lot, you know, and those folks are Shia Muslims and, and I'm from a Christian background. It was when I realized at that point uh, that, uh, that, you know, I wouldn't have been on that ship if it hadn't been for growing up as a child and every Sunday going to a church and hearing about Jesus and hearing about Jesus Christ and how he laid his life down for his beliefs and and how he called on his followers to to make a life of sacrifice and and if it, if it hadn't been for my christian background uh, i never would have become a leftist i never would have become a socialist and in fact i remember when i was in college there was a, a librarian at my college he was kind of an older guy he spoke chinese fluently and and he, and he had a wife uh, from vietnam and and he was an older guy and i remember he used to say to me and say you know he said you sound like a communist he says but i think deep down you're still a christian and I would say, that's that's crazy. What are you talking about? He said, no, I said, I, he said, I hear Christianity in you. Uh, and I didn't know what he meant until I was in Iran years later, a decade later, I was in Iran. And I realized that here I am and that so much of my life is, is you know, is rooted in Jesus Christ's teachings and my belief that there is something bigger than myself. I was just in this for my own personal gain. I would you know, started, a, you know, a company that makes porn websites or I'd be, you know, selling opium or something. You know, you know what I mean? I, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like I, I'm clearly motivated by something higher that i do have a spiritual drive behind a lot of what i do um and that, that forced me to realize that that seems to be one of the problems that the soviet union had uh, and that a lot of these communist countries that were led by atheistic governments had is that that by rejecting religion by seeing everything in this purely dogmatically materialist lens 
uh, by doing that, uh, they were kind of not understanding that people are motivated by something higher. And if you even think about like the great communists uh, in history, why did Che Guevara do what he did and take, take all those risks and give up everything? Why did he do that? He didn't have to do that. It wasn't in his material interest to do it. But, uh, you know, but he did it because he felt driven by some kind of higher power, some kind of inner spiritual force, right? And he probably was an atheist. And would, if you just said to him, oh, God is inspiring you to do this, he would have said, well, that's crazy. But I think there is, there is an inner spiritual drive. I mean, and that, that there are higher, higher motivations people can have throughout history. And I even reflect on my own life. Some of the decisions I've made in life that have been very, very good decisions have been ones I didn't think about. I just did it. You know what I mean? Like, you know, when, uh, you know, uh, and then I, I think about that and I think, well, how did I do that? Right. Well, it's like, you know, you know, and I think all of us, you know, they talk about, I think, you know, Quakers, uh, uh, they talk about the light within. Right. And I think all of us have access to some kind of higher spiritual energy. Um, but all of us also have our bodily, uh, you know, crass human desires, you know, and that uh, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a question of listening to our, our, you know, our higher spiritual side or listening to our lower crass human desires and, and, and figuring out who we are and listen to the light within, learning to listen to the light within you. Um, you know, one of the most beautiful pieces that I've ever read uh, is the, uh, is the, uh, the, the, uh, the Phaedo by Socrates. And this is the dialogue that Socrates gave uh, when he was facing death. Uh, you know, when he found out he was being executed, he was going to be executed. He was going to have to drink, um, drink hemlock. And he, he, it's the conversation. It's just a transcript of what he told his followers while he's waiting to be executed. And he's sitting with his followers and he's doing like one last study session with his followers before he gets, you know, he gets the death penalty. Um, and he's sitting there and he engages with them. And the first line of it is so beautiful. He says, when he found out he was going to be killed, he said the same dream came to him sometimes in one form and sometimes in another, but it always had the same message, which was go forth and make music, go forth and make music. And he interpreted that to be do as much teaching as you finally can uh, before you, you, you leave, you leave this world, you know, um, and mm. it's really, really beautiful. And you read it and, he, and he's getting his, his, his students to understand that, we human beings, we have our animalistic bodily desires, but we also have a soul. We have a higher part of ourselves. And that what he was trying to get his students to do as a philosopher was to listen to their inner light. And this is beautiful stuff. And this is really a big part of, of how I've come to understand my life and where I've gotten and how I, I got from where I from from Ohio to Occupy Wall Street, from Occupy Wall Street to Iran, from Iran back to the United States to setting up a think tank. You know, it's been reading reading the, that dialogue has been very important to me and, and, and helped me, again, do some reflection. But I would argue that the more you know yourself, the more you can know the people around you, right? That, that some people think, well, this is all just inner reflection. No, the more you know yourself, the more you can then help yourself to relate to people around you, that, that there's a connection, right? That, uh, that these things are connected. So there you go. That's my answer to that. Yeah, that's great. The inner light is a great way to see it because when you, um, when you see the inner light as what is underneath of all of our costumes. Mm -hmm. That's another great way to get to this feeling of oneness. And, uh, and that's what we share. You know, when you, when you talk about just awareness or consciousness itself, um, pure, bare, empty, um, 
that is what we share. Like this is consciousness talking to consciousness, awareness talking to awareness. And so the intelligence talking to the intelligence, life talking to life, reality talking to reality, light talking to light. And so when you really tune inward and, and feel this as well, you, you get that this light is going to reflect. The more that you touch this light within, it's going to reflect in the external architectures. And the more that the external architectures become meeting basic needs, the more people can turn inward toward the inner light. And I love that um, feedback loop that it has. And that's why that's why we had this show. And that's why it was so important to feature you and to talk about CPI. Yeah. And to, and to implement um, the four-point plan and to actualize it and um, and to get more and more of America and the world engaged in unity and in the basic needs architectures. Amen. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's really been a, a pleasure to come on your program. And I, this was a very fruitful discussion. We went some very interesting places. Good, brother. I'm so glad to hear that. And by the way, everyone, um, we love you very much. Thank you for tuning in. We're so grateful. Well, we've been we've been watching the live chat. You guys have been having a great conversation in there. We would we would love uh, to hear your thoughts in the comments also below. So drop us a comment and let us know how you feel about um, the video. You like the video if it brought you value. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't yet. Share the video with other people, with your friends, family. Get them inspired as well. And all the links in the bio. Um, we have also, we have Caleb's YouTube channel. He's actually quite oftenly doing streams on the channel as well. Um, and talking to America on the streets, um, at the state department, de uh, briefings. And this is some of your work with RT as well. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. And then talks, presentations, interviews, and so you can find, um, this link in the bio below. You can also find Caleb on Twitter, uh, and that links in the bio below as well. And then um, also his um, author page on Amazon, you can find that uh, link in the bio below. And CPI for um, getting signed up, checking out the four point plan here, and also going to join in the top corner. And so that, uh, I think that, that, covers, that covers it. Um, yeah, that covers it. Excellent. Right. It was fun. Excellent. I, I wish you the best and, and this is a great channel. You're doing great work here, Atlas. So thank you very much. Thanks, Caleb. Yeah, I'll go ahead and I'll wrap the, um, the studio and, okay. and then we'll, we'll stay, we'll stay in the studio and talk. I'll click end stream here in a sec. Thanks again, everyone for tuning in infinite love. Talk to you soon.